Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the book of Micah. This lesson was presented by Mr. Lawrence Jeffrey on June 13, 2021, during Sunday School. The lesson's title is The Corruption of the People and continues the discussion of Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll get into our text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we always do, Father, we thank you. that we could come and gather as your people to worship you on your day, Lord, and we thank for the beautiful day that you've given to us, this beautiful um, spring day, Father. And we pray as we look into your word that you'd guide us, that you'd teach us, and that we'd grow, um, that we'd grow in the faith, Father, that we would grow in grace and in truth and be more conformed to the image of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we've been, it's quite a, we're missing a lot of people today, which is all right, but we've been in this same place for quite some time. So let's read our text and hopefully finish it up. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right, so last week... I went through a very brief and um, understanding of the way that we think, or how, at least how we got to the place where we think what we think. And looking at um, verse 4 is how we moved in that direction. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, Right? And we discussed, in order for this to come to pass, these other things need to come to pass, right? That the word of the Lord needs to go forth from Mount Zion. That the nations need to flow to Mount Zion. And the Lord needs to judge disputes between the nations. So the nations can dwell in peace. And as... The nations dwell in peace, so men 
within those nations will be at peace and no one will make them afraid. And God will bless them, right? And every man will live by the produce of their own uh, hands. They'll be able to tame their appetites, not desiring the produce of others, right? That's what we discussed. And we were talking about how we can achieve that, how we can get to that, that point. And we discussed the virtues and things like that. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about virtues because I went back this week and I reread The Republic. And <laughs> what? <laughs> it was just a little light reading, yes, indeed. But um, what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But I, I, I misrepresented some things, and I would like to clarify, right? Because like using Plato, I mean, my goodness, after reading The Republic after so long, that man was crazy. I mean, he, uh, there are some really awful things in there, but some very good things as well, right? And for our point, anyways, the thing that I'd like to, to talk about, at least in this respect, is Plato divided the soul into three aspects, right? Who remembers what the three aspects that we discussed were? Go ahead. The head, the chest, and the stomach. That's right. The head, the chest, and the the belly. Correct, right. And the way that Plato described it, and the way I kind of misrepresented it, would be the head's the intellect. We got that, right? The chest now, the chest I described as virtues before. That's not quite right, the way he described it anyways. The chest is more of the spirit. And when I say spirit, the way you could think of it is like a horse being spirited, you know, uh, being lively, you know. Uh, passionate is another way to say it. Yes, the gumption, sure. And the belly, obviously, will still be the appetites. And he described virtues uh, needing to govern these things, right? What would govern the intellect? What do you need to govern the intellect? Well, you need wisdom to govern the intellect. And how do you govern the spirit in that sense, not the spirit in the way that we would understand spirit? Well, the way he described it would be courage, right? And how do you govern the appetites? That one's pretty simple. Temperance, right? Self-control. So you need these to govern uh, the soul, these virtues to govern the soul, to achieve what we call right, the good life. Um, and in this, what, the way Plato described it at this point, he was absolutely you know, correct, I would say. You know, it's a, maybe not perfect, but it is accurate. Every man has the ability to murder, yes? And if a man gets carried away by his spirit, he can commit great crimes of passion, great evils, right? The idea of following one's heart, etc., can lead to all kinds of disastrous consequences. Now, our day and our age, right, we spoke about it a little bit last time, was we are 
a people that is governed by our appetites, right? We're governed by the things that we think will make us happy. We pursue them, right? That's written into our Declaration of Independence, which is okay if we have a proper understanding of the good life, right? We've taken the idea of the pursuit of happiness and have transformed it into something that it was never meant to uh, be, even under the Lockean understanding of man, which is dead wrong. Remember what Locke said about human beings, right? That they're blank slates, right? Tabula rasa, all that good stuff. And like that leads to a whole another discussion, which we don't have uh, the time for. But that's the premise that a lot of our founders were, you know, part of the English Enlightenment. They're, you know, come from that tradition. So they had a sort of warped view of humanity um, in a lot of ways. So they still understood, though, that men need to be virtuous, right? That we need a virtuous people. And happiness comes from a virtuous life, right? As a matter of fact, when we discuss the good life, Jesus spoke a lot about the good life as uh, classical men would have understood it. Right? I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You guys know this very well. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for, for they shall be called sons of God. Excuse me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when you hear that word blessed, what word do you think, or like what, what comes to your mind? What, how do you understand that word blessed as Jesus describes it there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. What does that mean? What is he saying? Blessed. Blessed are you. I've heard another mm-hmm. word to be happy. Yes. Both of you said the same thing. Yes, that's right. The word is makarios, right? And the word literally is happy. Happy are you. We don't like to say happy because of the modern connotations of that word, the emotions, the emotional element of that. But this is the kind of happiness that would be spoken of when we talk about pursuing happiness, right? Or at least how our you know, forebears would have understood it. So happy are the poor in spirit. This is how one, as Jesus would describe it, gets to the, that good life, a life that is good, a life that is 
virtuous. All of these things that he describes are virtues of the Christian man, right? And woman. And this causes one to be happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. And that word happy there, makaria in the Greek, has a history in, uh, in Greece. They called... In their mythology, right, they had something like the Blessed Isles, right? The Happy Isles, a place where the gods dwell in some respect. You know, a place, a, a land of, of happiness, a land of blessedness, a state of um, well-being that exceeded physical under, like limitations. That's the kind of thing that is being described by Christ there. That happiness goes deeper than mere physicality, right? It's not, it has nothing to do with the appetites. It has everything to do with the virtues. Now, if we have a life that is governed by, well, if our intellect is governed by wisdom, is tempered by wisdom, right? Forged by it. And our spirit is governed and tempered by courage, and if our appetites are under our control, right? if we control ourselves, and we, uh, well, we temper ourselves, right? If we're able to do these things, think of what you could accomplish. I mean, in, in, just in truth, just ponder for a minute the things that you would be able to do, right? What pursuits could you, uh, in that, like, what, in, what could you do? Just what, if you wanted to, I don't know, let's say, speaking of art earlier, if you wanted to um, become an artist, right? What kind of artist could you be if you are governed by these things? What, what would you create? In our day, we look at our art, Right. Look at the art that is produced. It is trash. Right. Generally speaking, it is. It's garbage. Everything is perverse and crass and crude. There's nothing of beauty in it. Right. Um, think of our architecture, or think of the foods that we eat, or the uh, whatever it is. Whatever makes those. Whatever makes life worth the living, right? Those extras that make life worth the living. Um, the music that we listen to. All these things that are supposed to be virtuous. They're supposed to be beautiful and good, right? They've been, because we have been so governed by our appetites, they've been corrupted. But if we as Christians practice virtue, and we are able to put ourselves in control, think of the things that we can make, you know. Now, Steve asked before about chairs, right? Well, I spoke about chairs, and he asked about, like, when I asked a question, like, has anyone ever thought about the spirituality of a chair, right? That's a weird question to us as moderns. It would have been a question that most people would have thought about <laughs> way back when, 
you know, would have at least understood way back when. And when we were discussing it, do you remember what you said precisely? Well, I thought you were making a point that the virtues of the chair, that the ancients would have thought of the chair as um, mm. I remember. Well, what's good? Right, that's that's where we went. Right, you described it as like, well, okay, is it patterned after like uh, the throne of God? And and it's well, not necessarily is what I responded because the they would have spoken about the virtues of of, of the chair and understood the spirituality of the chair in that sense. Because remember, when we talk about virtue, and this is important because. Um, Getting back to the beginning of Micah, remember the thing that I, the verse I kept quoting from Hebrews, right? Like, what is first, the invisible or the visible world, right? Well, the things that are made are made from things that are invisible. So the invisible comes first, right? And those virtues are the invisible things that this world has been patterned after, right? And the, what is the invisible thing that everything has been patterned after? We spoke about this quite a bit, actually. Well, God himself, right? Christ, you know, the pre-incarnate. So if everything's patterned after him in some way, shape, and form, then... We should think of well, the things that we make in light of those virtues, right? In light of those invisible things. Now, if I ask like, about the spirituality of this chair and say, well, what virtues does it possess? I mean, it's functional, but is functionality a virtue? In some respects, I suppose it is. It does what it's supposed to do. It holds you up when you sit down on it. It's got cushions. It's, it could be comfortable. But, but is it... Does it have the high virtues, you know? Is it good? Is it beautiful, right? What is true about this, you know? In the deepest sense of the word, uh, capital T, truth. Uh, those are weird questions to ask, aren't they? But when you make, you should be thinking about those things, right? You should be patterning your creation after the highest, right? God created this world patterned after the invisible. So the things that we do should also be patterned after the invisible. That's what the, well, our forefathers would have understood things, how they would have understood things. That's why they made cathedrals, right? Go ahead. I would say that uh, what we create reflects who we are. So who we are, in light of what you're saying, where we should be the reflection of our creator. Yes, right. It, what we create does reflect uh, who we are. No, I, I, I know, I know, I know. I'm trying to think of how I can, how I can uh, rephrase it, you know, um, put it in a, in a different understanding. Because, yes, in our day, art is merely self-expression. That's all it is. Unfortunately, right? 
all art right now is understood to be self. As a matter of fact, everything that the modern man does, and this is good, I'm glad you brought that up because that, remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about uh, a book by Carl Truman. And in that, he describes men, modern man, as expressive individualists. Like every single one of us is an expressive individualist. That's why we have bumper stickers on our cars. You know. um, but we, we feel the need to express our individuality. We, need to, we feel the need to, uh, the underlying thing is there, create ourselves. We think that we can, that we have the power to create ourselves. And the things that we do in this world, especially in the artistic world, are miniature creations of ourselves, right? And if anything that is not, I'm trying to think of specific things that I could talk about that are not too crass. So they, are, they do get crass. All right. Have you seen artwork where they take a classical work and then just make it absurd? Right? You've seen that? What are they saying when they do this? They're saying that there is no truth, goodness, or beauty, right? That's exactly what they're saying when they do that, when they take a work that expresses something high and make it crude or coarse or smear feces on it or whatever it is that they do, right? There is nothing high. There is no virtue. All that we can do is express ourselves, right? That's all that we can do. That's how modern man does see the world, and it's very unfortunate. But, as you said, um, everything that we create does show ourselves, right? We put, we put ourselves into what we make. Now, the danger of that is we need to be governed by um, by those higher virtues. And as we are governed by those higher virtues, and we, as we try to create patterned after heaven, we, well, we more reflect God, right? So when it talks about us being the image of God, the things that we do as human beings should be reflections of God, right? Should be reflections of those virtues that God has. We spoke about this when we read from Second Peter, right? We'll read from there one more time. Just to show you what I'm talking about. All right. His divine power, this is from the first chapter of Second Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped um, from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desire. We'll stop there but being partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? 
theosis, as the Greek Orthodox call it. Good. Right. And that's how he describes it here, right? He's given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness, his word and everything, right? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, to his own glory and virtue, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that we become godlike, right? Godlike in what sense? In the sense of those virtues, as he describes, that our lives are patterned now after those higher virtues, right? That we are not governed by our appetites, as he says in the very next line, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, that sinful lust, that appetite, right? This is the, the world that Plato spoke about. And the reason why I used him is because that's the world that Peter lived in, you know? He's speaking here about those things that Plato spoke about, virtue, appetite, wisdom, right, etc. So what Peter, Paul, and those do is at least put, I don't don't want to say it this way, but um, Plato was on to something, right? But he was wrong about a lot. He was like a blind man, as Paul says, groping in the dark. So what they do is they enlighten, they shed the light on, they show where all this stuff comes from, the, the truth of what's being said. So we can use these men, as we said, spoke about before, because they put things away in ways that uh, are helpful. And we could take what's helpful and leave the rest, right? Because we do have everything that pertains to life and godliness, including the scriptures, to illumine these things. But we do need to understand the world that, these, that the writers of scriptures lived in as well. When they were talking about virtue, when they were talking about appetite, when they were talking about these things, this is how um, these men would have understood it, right? So we should understand it that way as well, because it's true, right? Unfortunately, in our day, one second, sorry. Unfortunately, in our day, right, we've gotten so far away from this, even as the church, that, as a matter of fact, as Americans, what is the driving philosophy of, of America? I mean, uh, like the school of philosophy. It has driven America from almost the very beginning. It, there's, we have a very specific school of thought that is ours. They even call it American pragmatism. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know what the word pragmatic means, right? Right. We do what works. We make things work. We make things go. That's what we do, right, as Americans. I mean, the school of American pragmatic thought is a bit deeper than that, but for our intents and purposes, that'll uh, be where we go. And it's so far removed from... I mean, yes, live a virtuous life if it makes you happy, right? If it works for you, if it doesn't work for you. Like, why would you be, why would you, as Jesus says, why would you treat others the way you want to be treated? Well, because you want to win friends and influence people, right? 
No, really, right? That's the, it's not because it's good or it's righteous, but because you can gain and you can benefit from it. I mean, we're Americans, and that's what we do. We get over on people all the time. Good. What were you going to say? Okay, yes. Because there's a little more to that, I think. Not that I negate what Sarah said, because that's certainly true. Partaker is also, though, becoming a member of, embracing. Uh, Participating in. Yeah, and so and this kind of goes with the point you just made. Mm-hmm. Because when that occurs in our lives, when we embrace that, when we become a true member of that, just like when the heart is changed, what comes out of the heart Right. So the same thing when you partake of, when you become a member of, mm-hmm. not just like joining a club, obviously. No. Everything you do, everything you think, however you function, is going to reflect that partaking of whatever it is you're partaking of. Right. In, in this case, obviously, partaking of the blessings of God, partaking of, of, uh, of the, the uh, change that God works within our lives. Everything should then reflect, even the building of the camp. Absolutely, right. Well, uh, to broaden it a little bit, um, partaking, yes, does mean those things you said, but to put it in a different perspective, we are participating in God himself, in the Godhead, right? By, if we live as... Peter described, as Christ described, as Micah describes, um, if we live in that manner, we are participating in the Godhead, right? When we have been united to God, uh, mysteriously, right, through the Spirit, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, yes? That's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. But every man participates Every, I should say it this way, everything participates in God, in their createdness, insofar as they reflect him, right? Men are unique in that, because every single human being is the image of God, right? There are attributes of rocks and trees and the sky and seas, etc., that reflect God. God can be just, you know... Um, we could say the tree is like God in this way, or the rock is like God in that way. We can never say that God is like the rock, right? We spoke about that a little bit, you know. Can't do that. It only works one way, not both. That's why you can never make an image of God, right? Because God is like nothing. And God already made an image of himself, yes, in people. So we can't create an image of God, uh, by shaping stone or working metal, whatever it would be, right? That's besides the point. So, but the things that God make participate in him insofar as they reflect whatever virtues that he places in them, right? And it's our task as his image bearers to draw those things out and glorify them, right? Make them beautiful. Like you look at how, how, how does this work? Give you a scriptural image of something like this. God put Adam and Eve in a garden, right? And where does the Bible end? In a city, right? So he puts them, he gives them beautiful world, paradise, right? We call it paradise. 
with all these raw materials, with onyx, stone, and gold, and bdellium, and all of these things. And then Christ, as last Adam, works these things, builds this wonderful city. So we see those raw materials that are good, God calls them good, right? And now we see them glorified and beautified and made majestic in terms of the city, yes? That's how we create, yeah? We take what God makes and use it to reflect him. We don't make things ugly. At least we shouldn't. We should try not to. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Does every chair have to be made with maximal beauty in mind or as a work of art? Or is the beauty sometimes in the function? Every chair is a work of art. Okay. I mean, it's an artifice, yes? Okay. But yeah, go ahead. But does every chair have to be made with maximal beauty? What does that mean? Uh, as beautiful as it can be. Or is the beauty in the purpose and the function of the chair? Uh. This is part of a good question. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Because, uh, look, these, these chairs serve a real good function here. And there's beauty in that, and that we can gather together, worship God, and sit down. Is there? Because the chair isn't as beautiful as a throne, doesn't mean that it's not beautiful in its intent and function. That's what I'm trying to... That's a different definition of beauty. You're using two different definitions of the word beauty there. Well, that's what, it, every chair, what is your definition? God, <laughs> but I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to be flippant about that. In every way, I can't emulate God in every way, but but it should it should be beautiful in form, right? It, it has a form. This has a form, so it should be every single aspect of it. It should be beautiful in the fact that you could sit on it, but it should also be beautiful in form. Yes, because it has a form. But there's beauty in simplicity as well. It doesn't have to be ornate if that's what you mean. It doesn't have to be ornately carved. There is beauty and simplicity. There are simple lines. Yeah. In a simple way, they could be. Are they? Now the question. Is, sure, sure. But the question is, are they? You know what I mean? Right. Right. No, they're not. Well, we could. We're we're running out of time. And we could talk about that. Okay. Yeah, we could talk about that. Uh, not next time, but uh, later. You know, even at at the at the thing. You know. Go ahead. No, you. No, I mean, that does play into it. But you can mass produce things that are lovely. You know what I mean? Like uh, with modern technology, we have the ability to do that. But um, that's that's neither here here nor there, huh? They are discussing form and function. They are different. But but the, but the, but the problem is though, everything that we create has both form and function, you know, and it needs to be good, and on both counts, every aspect of it needs to be good, beautiful, etc. Right. All right. But before we finish, um, that partaking of that divine nature, that living in that way, right? Living that virtuous life, living that good life as described by Scripture, you know? Um, Look at verse 5 of Micah 4. For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk 
in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What is the name of God? What does that mean? Exactly. So what does it mean to walk in that name? Living that life. that we, Right. Walking in a manner worthy of that. Living that virtuous life is exactly what we talked about, exactly what we had just described. It's the partaking of the divine nature. Are there any thoughts or comments or questions? Because we can wrap up here. Um, I, know, I know it's confusing a little bit because, again, we don't think like those things, you know? Part of, part of um, creating beautifully is intending to, you know what I mean? Go ahead. Yes. Um, I was trying to gather an explanation as to how we're participating in the Godhead. I don't know if this is correct, but is it that we are drawing out the attributes of God in our lives? Yeah, we're reflecting the character of God in our lives, so right? The Through the power of the Spirit in the name of Christ, right? Yeah, that's how we participate. That's how we partake. I suppose you could say it that way of the divine nature living that virtuous life in the power of the Spirit in the name of Christ, right? Yeah? Does that make sense? As Paul, Because Paul describes that in other ways, everything we do, all whatever we do, we do, right? In the name. So whether we eat, whether we drink, etc., etc. Uh, any other comments or questions about this? Right. You know, the, the world has, you know, tried to take a, a, a word. That, that's, that's a good point. We'll end with this. He's absolutely correct. Okay. Uh, the, what he said for recording purposes, and so others could hear, was that we have to reclaim those virtues, the meaning of those words, uh, and to their original intent, right? or at least to their biblical intent because the world has taken them and twisted them, right? We could think of justice. Right? When someone talks about justice in the modern context, especially in our woke era, they don't mean justice as God means justice. When they talk about honor, when they talk about duty, when they talk about love, right? Love wins. Right? When they talk about any of these things, they don't mean the same thing that we mean, right? Because, and there's a reason for this. Because these are words, remember we spoke about um, realism, you know, metaphysical realism, and nominalism? These are just names that we use as tools to express, in our modern sense, our own ideals, and we use them for the purposes of gaining power. When we, that's why we talk about virtue signaling, right? When we talk about virtue signaling, like uh, we say, like, I stand with the LGBTQ plus community, right? That's virtue signaling. 
there's no virtue in that whatsoever, right? In, in truth, in reality. But I'm using that word virtue to gain for myself power in some sense, yes? To gain recognition in the eyes of my fellow men, etc., right? To seem really virtuous. To seem really virtuous. But it's not, as they would understand, it's not seeming, you know what I mean? They would understand it just in terms of power, right? Language is, is how we manipulate, how we control, how we create, because we are, as Satan would put it, as gods, right? How did God make? He made the world through speaking. So we think that I identify as, I can create in the same manner, right? We could shape reality with our own words, and that's true power, is it not? Um, so yes, we need to reclaim language. Yes, absolutely, because the, the problem that we face is understanding that language has a meaning that is eternal, that it belongs to God, right? That God spoke, and so we speak, that he's first, that he's primary. So when we talk about good, right, that has an absolute meaning. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It is objective, right? All of these virtues are objective. They have objective standards, and that standard is God himself. Right? So we need to understand that and shape our lives after that absolute standard that is God. And when we do that, then we'll start to see the nations flow too because everybody craves these things. It's part of us. Our souls need it. You know what I mean? There's a reason why in the trans community, suicide is so high. They think that this is going to make them happy by mutilating their bodies? No. Their souls need these things. They crave these. God made us this way, you know, to desire Him. Right? How does Augustine put it? Everybody knows that quote by Augustine. So, um, yes, our souls are restless, you know, that, that quote. Until they find their rest in you. So, that's that's the truth. When we not to sound, you know, too soft or flippant, but everybody has a God-shaped hole in their hearts, right? Yeah. But but but, unfor- but it's 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 true. It is true in some respects. Right? Everyone desires what's beautiful. Everyone desires love, in the true sense of the word love. Everyone desires, you know, honor. No one wants to be dishonored, right? but truly honored. So, if we can do that as the church, then, yeah, we will draw men to ourselves. Okay? Just as God said would happen. But we have to live in such a manner as that doesn't reflect the world, but reflects God himself. Okay? We're supposed to be shaped and made into the image of Christ. That's the goal of all things, right? That's the end of it for us to be conformed to the image of his son, right? So, any other comments or questions? No? Very good. So that's a good place to end. That's a good place to close. So yes, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We let the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but as for us...
we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you had not left us as orphans, but have sent us your spirit, that you've united us with yourself and with each other, Father God. And we pray, Lord, that we might live lives of virtue, that we might truly reflect you, your character, your beauty, your glory, Father God, in our lives, that we might um, not just be hearers of the word, but also doers, Lord. But now, as we seek to worship you, we pray that we would give you the honor that you deserve, that you would be glorified and magnified and exalted in our worship today, that as we ascend into the heavenlies, that you would hear our prayers, that you would receive our songs, and that you would um, remember us as we dine at your table, Father God, that you would see Christ in each and every one of us, Father, and be pleased with the worship uh, that we give you today.